Well, better late than never. From the west coast of America and the front lines of American healthcare, I'm the Dashing Doctor, here with the Dashing MD podcast, and this week's episode, Three Patients, Three Families. Just a reminder to those of you who are new to this podcast, this podcast can be subscribed at feeds.feedburner.com backslash dashingmd. You can find it on iTunes if you just search for Dashing MD, and it's available on podcast directories anywhere. Welcome. Today's podcast will be in two segments. Uh, the first will be a quick look at the mailbag. We've got some correspondence in. As always, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all the mail that we get here at dashingmd at yahoo.com. It's a pleasure to be able to respond to your questions and your comments on the podcast. And we're going to do that just in the next segment. Then we're going to talk about three patients that I've seen, three families that I've seen with those patients over the past three weeks and three stories that are similar in some senses and yet in some ways show just how different three patients and three families can be. So, first to the mailbag. You all probably remember Nancy, who wrote in to our, uh, from our correspondence episode a couple of episodes ago, and Nancy has kindly written back with uh, some more questions and comments and thoughts on the podcast, and I want to share them all with you now. So, Nancy writes, Dear Dashing MD, Thank you for answering my questions regarding surgeons and scrub nurses. I was excited to hear my email read on the air. I really enjoyed last week's podcast, especially about Dick Cheney's blood clot. Because of how quickly he was back at work, I got the impression it was not that serious, and I was very interested in your explanation of blood clots and blood thinners. I was also moved by your description of the veterans you were treating and how grateful they were. You must see some terrible things. I'm curious about some things if you think these would be of interest in your next email segment. 1. I realize you can't name names, but have you ever treated a famous patient or know any doctor who has? What's it like? 2. I had non-emergency surgery once, and the anesthesia was administered right after I got on the table. Is this done to prevent the patient from having time to panic and perhaps get off the table? I want to wish you a happy birthday. I hope you're feeling all right. I thought you sounded a little down on the podcast. Well, thanks, Nancy. Um, first of all, uh, thanks for wishing me a happy birthday. Um, this whole 30 thing is starting to settle in. I definitely feel older and wiser by the day. Um, and I'm feeling fine. I think that uh, the last week's podcast was um, colored by the fact that I just got this new microphone and I was listening to myself on headphones as I was doing the podcast. And I, I sort of got obsessed with this idea of sounding sort of as easy listening, smooth jazz announcer as I possibly could. And uh, one thing led to another. And in the end, I think I just ended up sounding depressed. Anyway, I'm back to my uh, usual normal talking voice, I think, on this new podcast. The novelty of the new microphone is worn off, and I'm excited about answering your questions and uh, responding to your comments. First of all, on the Dick Cheney blood clot thing, um, did you notice that he went back to the hospital again last week for some unspecified pain in his leg, issue with his clot, um, issue with his Coumadin uh, thing? I, I think this is really getting underplayed by the press. This is a bad disease to have. Um, but, uh, much as I disagree with his politics, I wish him well. Um, and, uh, I appreciate your thoughts on the veteran thing. I mean, it is, as I said, uh, an amazing opportunity to treat, uh, the casualties of American foreign policy. And, uh, I'm grateful 
uh, to them, I'm sure just as much as they may be grateful to me and to those of us who take care of them. Now, to your questions. First, uh, treating famous people. I don't think I've treated anyone famous. I definitely know people who have. Um, you know, one of the things about having a giant trauma center is that trauma sort of does not discriminate by class in any way, and you definitely see people uh, come into the hospital um, who are injured for any number of reasons, and that can include crashing the Rolls Royce or being injured on the professional football field or any number of these things. Um, you know, generally, for elective things, you know, people who uh, have the resources often will choose to go to private hospitals. Um, but when it comes to trauma, we're the, the place it is. So if you're badly injured, no matter who you are, you come through. Um, as it happens, I just haven't been on when that's gone on. Um, but I've heard stories. Um, and I personally have had the experience of taking care of um, people who are sort of connected to very famous people. I took care of the gardener, for instance, of a, a very famous industrialist who, uh, whose name I'm sure you would all know and whose product I know you all know. Um, who had fallen while working at this person's tennis court. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think that when you have the opportunity to practice medicine, you realize some pretty fundamental things about humanity very early on. And one of those things is that everybody is kind of the same, um, that no matter how many times you may have been in People magazine or on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, um, you still have like the same blood vessels and the same intestines and the same bones and they break in the same way and um you get pretty unimpressed by that sort of thing um but the thing that really struck me about taking care of this guy uh and his boss came in with him or shortly thereafter um is how fame can hinder care uh, because these people were very famous um they're very wealthy and they are used to being able to have everything they want and um so they were constantly questioning whether what they were getting, what they happened to have offered to them was the best or whether they could, if they just expended a little more money or called a few more important people, could get something more. And so this guy with the broken leg kind of ended up getting put in limbo in our emergency room for an hour with a horribly painful fracture while his boss tried to establish whether or not he could get better care if they got the chief orthopedic surgeon for our local professional football team to come and see him or if they, uh, you know, arranged for him to be transferred to a private hospital. Um, and the reality, of course, is that there's a reason why people who are severely tra uh, traumatically injured come to our hospital, which is that we are the best place to take care of these things. And inevitably, the people that they called said, yeah, I know it's not pretty and the food's not bad and it's loud and, and, it's, and it's difficult and you're surrounded by screaming drunks, but you are actually in the very best place to have this injury taken care of. And eventually they came around to it, but for two hours, uh, while we otherwise would have just been treating this guy, they insisted on exploring all their options. And, and since those are options that most people don't have, they don't have that problem. Um, and I thought that was a sort of interesting price to pay for fame and fortune. Your second question, I had non-emergency surgery and the anesthesia was administered right after I got on the table. Actually, you know, we often start anesthesia in the waiting room, in the, in the pre-anesthesia care area um, before you go back to the operating room. Most people are given some uh, sedatives, usually something like uh, Valium and, or Versed, um, 
which have uh, a, both a sedative effect and a hypnotic effect, they'll cause amnesia, really. You sort of, you won't really, you won't be able to remember anything afterwards. And a lot of people after surgery, you know, don't remember coming to the hospital that morning. Um, and I think that it is done to prevent people from panicking to some extent. Um, just because, you know, I think getting wheeled back into an operating room and then put up on a table that's very thin and, you know, having a seatbelt put around you and then a bunch of people with masks are sort of leaning over you and undressing you. And I mean, it's an unnatural place to be. And I certainly would want to be well medicated by the time I got there. Um, I know that. So, uh, yeah, we, we start, start early and start often with the anesthesia, I think is the best policy to have. Um, all right. And that's, uh, that's email from Nancy. Again, I love hearing from the listeners. If you could please, uh, send me your thoughts and your questions. I'd love to read them on the air as well. It's dashingmd at yahoo.com. Um, now to the second segment, I just finished up three weeks in the ICU at our main university hospital. And in each of those weeks, you know, so once a week, there would be something, an event with a patient that I would think, I had to talk about this on the podcast. And I've sort of been thinking about what the theme is on these, and it suddenly occurred to me that, that the theme was very clear, and it was the theme of families in medicine and families in deciding on the care of their loved ones. And... There are three families that I want to talk about, the families of three different patients, all critically ill, um, who sort of represent the three positions that, uh, that we can respond to as doctors. Uh, in the one case, a family who uh, wants to withdraw care when we don't think they should. In the other, a family who refuses to withdraw care when we desperately wish that they would. And then a case of where everybody is on sort of the same page and and it becomes clear that withdrawal of care is absolutely the right thing to do. Now, I've talked in previous podcasts about my feelings on withdrawal of care and on wasting unnecessary resources on patients who have no chance of survival. And I think and it's a sort of a recurring theme with me because it's something I feel very strongly about and I think it's an example of both what we do the best in medicine and our best opportunity to truly be doctors um, in this sort of ancient sense of of helping people cope with illness including patients families um, and it's what we do worst in medicine I think in, in that we often have a tendency to try to do more and apply more science to something that's more perhaps of an art um, and more of an exercise in empathy than we give it credit for. So in the first week, we had a patient come in who was about my age, actually, just a little over 30. His birthday was the day before mine, and this was a couple of days before my birthday. And he'd been living on the street. He was a heroin addict. And he had been injecting heroin into his muscles, having used up his veins. And though he was my age, he looked probably 60, 65. It's amazing how heroin will age a person 
he came in to the emergency room complaining of a big abscess on his arm. This is extremely common around here where there's a lot of heroin use. And generally speaking, these abscesses are opened and they are emptied out um, and they sort of get better on their own. We send people out on antibiotics. Often it's done in the emergency room. In this case, the guy came into the emergency room and his arm didn't look that bad to the emergency room doctors and they really sort of took their time working it up. Um, but then they sort of noticed that it was spreading a bit. So they decided they might as well get some labs, but it's hard to get labs on people who are heroin addicts because you can't find blood vessels to draw blood from. So it took them a while to get some blood and then they decided to get a CAT scan and the blood count came back and his white blood cell count was 50,000, which is five times the normal limit. And his other labs suggested that he had not just an abscess, but something called necrotizing fasciitis, which is famous for being the, the flesh-eating bacteria disease that uh, sort of made the headlines and makes the headlines periodically. Um, people get all scared about you know three or four cases. And the reality is, in the heroin population, it's common. We see several cases a week of this disease. It's a horrible disease. It You have to go in and take out huge amounts of tissue, all the infected tissue, try to get all the bacteria out and the bacteria travel along the muscle fascia and through the muscle body and you end up taking off, you know, people's whole arms, whole legs, you take out half of their pelvis, you take off their their chest wall. Uh, I mean, you, the, 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 the debridements, the removal of tissue that you have to do are really extraordinarily disfiguring and awful. Um, Anyway, by the time we heard about this guy, several hours had gone by since he'd first presented to the emergency room, and he had a clearly expanding infection. You could look at his arm and watch the infection moving up his arm. And we took him to the operating room, explaining to him that he did not, that he he had a potentially fatal disease. And, you know, he was actually sort of a didn't seem to care, didn't seem to understand. I mean, he wanted to go out for a cigarette quickly before we took him back to the OR and um, didn't really seem to be interested, really, in what was going on, seemed to sort of assume that everything would be okay or maybe just to not care, kind of how things ended up at that point. He came out of the uh, OR with a white blood cell count of 100,000. And in our experience, no one with a white blood cell count over 100,000 has ever survived this disease. Um, he was in the ICU uh, and I was taking care of him there. We were giving him antibiotics and sort of doing everything we could, but it, we realized that this was a futile thing. And his family showed up. Um, they'd heard that he was in the hospital, um, but knew nothing about his condition. So I went out and explained to them how sick he was I told them that no one had ever survived uh, the degree of illness that he had, um, but that we were willing to try to do everything we could. And they asked to come back to see him, and they stood around his bedside. And while we were standing there, his heart rate started to become irregular, and he had a started having some some strange heart rhythms and I told the family that uh, we needed to decide right now whether we were going to pursue 
care for him and do everything we could or whether we were going to stop. And they said, stop, don't do anything more. And so we didn't give him any uh, emergency cardiac medications and he died three minutes later with his family at his bedside. And I think that's an example of how it can go absolutely perfectly, of how this process can be made smooth and as easy as it can be, given that it's infinitely difficult. Because the family understood the value of what was being done. We felt that it was futile to continue. They felt that it was futile to continue. And they were able to be there for those last moments, having made that decision and without us having done any thing extraordinary and excessive to prolong this patient's death. Another example the next week was a woman who'd been in the ICU for almost a month by the time I arrived in the ICU and who had been wavering with us for a long time. She was an 80-year-old woman who'd come in with a very complex abdominal process and had had a big abdominal surgery and had never done well afterwards, had become persistently uh, septic, meaning that she was infected somewhere. We were never able to find the source, but she uh, continued to require all sorts of medications to maintain her blood pressure. Her liver failed, her kidneys failed, um, and still we kept going and kept going and kept going. And then as we talked to her family, they would say, oh, she's been sick before, we, we want to keep going. And this patient required such high levels of medication to keep her blood pressure up that her fingers and her toes turned black um, from all the constriction of her blood vessels. Her liver stopped making proteins to keep the blood within her blood vessels. And so we continued to pour fluids into her um, to maintain her vascular volume um, but it would just leak right out into her tissues. And so she got progressively more and more swollen. A woman who'd weighed maybe 90 pounds uh, when she came into the hospital, uh, was she probably weighed two, 200 pounds maybe. Um, if you stuck her with a needle, her skin would just ooze and ooze and ooze for days. Um, and the hole would never close because she'd lost her ability to heal. Her midline abdominal incision that we'd made after three weeks looked like we'd made it the day before. And we were desperate for the family to say that it was okay to stop taking care of, of this woman's death, to stop prolonging the inevitable. And they wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it. And it was because a family member who was a nurse who lived in another state and hadn't come to see her um, continued to maintain that, well, she'd been through bad times before and didn't, she didn't want to let go. She didn't want to give up. Um, in the end, we got representatives from all of the many services that were taking care of her, the hepatologists, the nephrologists, the infectious disease doctors, us, the internal medicine consult folks. All of us sat down with the family and told them there was no hope for her to make a meaningful recovery. And she, to her credit, the patient had said that if she couldn't make a meaningful recovery, that she couldn't go home and live on her own after the surgery, she did not want to survive. 
and having made that declaration, I, we were able to reference that and talking to the family and, and made them realize that this was against her wishes, that she had been needlessly suffering for weeks and that to continue it would be wrong. And they, in the end, agreed to withdraw care. And the last case was a couple of days ago and still sort of haunts me. Um, there's a patient that we operated on in early March uh, who I'd known very briefly. He'd spent the night in the ICU afterwards and then gone back to the floor and then gone home. He'd had a relatively minor vascular surgery. And he came back in a couple weeks later. And for reasons that are really still unclear, um, he'd gone into renal failure. And he came into the hospital and, you know, while that's obviously a serious thing, like it, it didn't appear incredibly serious at the time. Um, but the morning that he, after he arrived, he, um, his blood pressure dropped and we brought him to the intensive care unit and we gave him a huge amount of fluids thinking that he just bled into his uh, retroperitoneum, which is the sort of the area behind the bowel. Um, and it was clear on a CT scan that there was blood there. And we, uh, we thought, oh, well, that's that. He's just, he's just, his hematocrit's too low. He's bled out into this space. And so we'll give him fluid, we'll give him blood. He'll turn right around. But it's actually his urine output dropped to zero. And we ended up having to put him on dialysis. And even then he was doing okay. But then he started to get obtunded. He started to sort of wax in and out of consciousness and not make sense when he was talking and eventually we got to where we were worried about his ability to maintain his own airway so we intubated him and he continued to deteriorate then he was on blood pressure maintenance medications what are called pressors because um, we couldn't keep his blood pressure up and his liver failed um, and we couldn't figure out what was going on and he got sicker and sicker and his family was there his wife was there and his whole family was there and they were desperate at first for us to do anything we could and we worked and we worked and we worked and I, I guess partly because we didn't know what was the cause of all of it we sort of assumed like we would get control of it you know like because we couldn't point to any one specific thing we couldn't fix um, we figured we'd we'd get it under control and and on the third day, he really, he looked awful. And all day we were in his room. I mean, the whole team was around. And I was there almost every second for 16 or 17 hours. And uh, and when I left, he was unstable, but, but stably so. And when I came back on his fourth day, um, he actually looked a little better. Where he'd been on four pressers, um, he was now just on three. And he was looking pretty good in a sense of, you know, sort of being stable. And then midday, his cardiac output started to go down um, and his blood pressure sort of started to wobble a little bit. So we were going to put him on some other agents because it seemed clear that his heart was not working as well as it could have. And we got an echocardiogram and it was not working as well as it had been a couple days before. So probably 
because of all these pressors which squeeze your blood vessels. We'd squeezed his heart's arteries and veins and uh, had given him a little bit of a heart attack as a result of having to use so much of these medications to keep his blood pressure up. And so we switched him to these other medications, but he still wasn't doing well. And he actually started to do very poorly. Um, his heart rate slowed and his cardiac output dropped even further. And his family, who was in the room, um, sort of understood that that was what was happening. And they, they asked me if the medications that I was giving him at that time were rescue medications, if they were there to save him um, from something acute, an acute problem. And I said that, yes, they were. And they said, no, we'll stop. Don't do it anymore. Let him go. He wants to go. And I said, well, I think we can, I think we can turn him around. I think we can get him through this moment. I mean, we, we haven't used everything we've got. We haven't tried everything we have. Um, and at that point, the wife came in and she, she was ready. Um, and I think to, to have watched her over four days sort of cope with the degree of his illness, um, I think she and her family had realized that they couldn't handle his being that sick for any longer. Um, they couldn't worry about it anymore. Um, and even if there was a tiny chance of our being able to turn him around this time, they, they understood in a way I think that we didn't understand that this was too much, that they had gone too far and that it was time to say that enough was enough, that even if medical science could provide some sense of hope for a potential future, knowing that that hope was as low as it was and knowing that his chances were as low as they were and having then to watch the person that they loved, you know, turn purple in a bed um, for what was clearly going to be days or weeks before we would even know if there was a chance of meaningful recovery, assuming he survived, uh, was too much for them. And the wife came in and went to the head of the bed and told him it was okay to go and that they would be all right. And she left. She didn't want to see him like that anymore. And they asked me to withdraw care. So I obviously have to respect those decisions. And, and personally, I think at that point I was ready. But I had to call the chief resident and let her know she was in the operating room. She told me to call the attending and the third-year resident on the service. And they came over. The attending, well, the attending didn't come over. He was away, but the third-year resident came over, and the family explained what they wanted to do, how they wanted to withdraw care. And we all agreed to do it. And we turned off his pressors and watched his blood pressure drop and watched his heart rate drop and were standing peacefully by his bed as they said goodbye and it was clearly such the right thing for them and for him. And then the chief came in. She'd come out of the OR and she burst through the doors expecting us to be running a full code on this guy and said, well, what's going on? And I said, well, we've withdrawn. And she looked at me and she said, you withdrew without me? Right there in the room with the family. So I asked her to step outside, and um, 
explained what had happened and she wouldn't believe that we hadn't done everything we could. She asked why I hadn't kicked the family out. She said, you can't run a code with the family in the room. You can't run a good code. And I said, they didn't want to leave and I respect their right to not leave. She said, well, what did the wife say? I said, the wife said goodbye. And she wouldn't accept that that they could come to that decision because we knew that we could have kept him alive a little longer. I mean, I could have. There were medications that I could have used. I'd given him some things that had shown some response, and I could have kept him going on those for a little while. I mean, I think that the outcome, the end outcome, was so clear in this guy, and it was so clearly not what they wanted that it was hard to to be able to stand there. I couldn't have stood there and said, no, trust us, we'll get him through this in any real way. And the chief, you know, she wasn't there. She hadn't seen it. She didn't fully understand that we really had, I think, reached the natural end. And she was so angry. Um, but then the family came out of the room because the patient, while we were standing in the hallway, finally died. And they came and they gave us all big hugs and said, thank you for taking care of him and thank you for respecting us when we wanted to stop. And I think that that made a difference in the end. I don't know that that particular chief and I will ever quite get over our respective feelings about how the other person handled it, but um, I think it was the right thing to do for the family. And I think in the end, if it causes strife on our, our end for a family to be happy, then fine. We, we're professionals and we can deal with it because we did the right thing for the patient in that moment, and I feel good about that. Um, so that's three families, three patients, three ways for us to feel about those families' choices. What do you think? I look forward to your thoughts, your comments on this and any other issue at dashingmd at yahoo.com. Another thing I'd like to hear about from all of you is what else you're listening to. What is the listenership of the Dashing MD podcast? That's a big question that I have. And um, while I have some sense of where you all come from and, and some general idea of how many of you are out there um, from the network stats, I'm interested in knowing you know, a little more about you. Who, who else are you listening to online? What else are... What interests you? How did you find the Dashing MD podcast? Um, let me know a little bit about yourselves. I'd love to just sort of do a who we in this community are kind of show here in the near future. Um, for the next episode, though, I'm going to be doing a, a, a show, which I think is actually going to be pretty cool. It's um, I want to talk about what questions you should ask your surgeon if you're going to have surgery. My father actually is, is going to be having some very minor elective surgery. And, um, and I've been struck knowing that, knowing that it's both very minor and very elective by how uh, controlling I've been about his selection of physician and the timing of this thing and how it's all going to work. And, um, and even though this is a minor procedure that I personally have done on people, um, how insistent I am on get finding exactly the right person for the job and um, 
how many questions I want to have answered by that surgeon before he does this operation. Knowing as I do, you know, what can happen with any surgery because I'm exposed constantly to the complications and the things that go wrong. Um, so I'm going to share sort of my list of questions that I would ask a surgeon who is taking care of a, a member of my family with you. Um, and hopefully they'll be useful questions that you yourself can take with you uh, should any of you have to have surgery. Um, so that'll be our next episode. In the meantime, dashingmd at yahoo.com is the email. Subscribable on iTunes, just search for DashingMD, or at feeds.feedburner.com backslash DashingMD. I'm the Dashing Doctor. So long. <laughs>